First, a gentle warning. This podcast can be a hard listen at times and includes themes of violence, mental distress and racism. It's something you might need to consider before listening. Early on Sunday, 3rd of May 2015, Police Scotland's control room starts to receive calls. Hello, there's a man with a knife, a black man on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy. Police arrive at the scene and within minutes, Sheikh Bayo is down on the ground. After being restrained by up to six officers, he stops breathing. Many of the details of what happened that morning are in dispute. His devastated family are still searching for answers. They want to know what role race played in Sheku's death. They claim he is Scotland's George Floyd. Sheku died here in Scotland and I am fighting, we as a family are fighting for changes to happen in Scotland. No family should suffer the way that we are suffering. Police refute this. Now a public inquiry, launched in May 2022, is trying to find out what really happened. Its purpose is to seek to ascertain the truth and to that purpose, I am fully committed. Welcome to Shaker Bio, The Inquiry, a podcast series from The Ferret. Episode 7, Hot to Touch. It's a chilly November day in 2023 and Tuesday morning traffic means Caddy Johnson is running late to meet with family lawyer Amar Anwar. She's travelling to Edinburgh for the 70th day of the public inquiry into the death of her brother, Sheikh Ubayo. The first six episodes of this podcast have covered all the evidence heard so far in this now long-running inquiry. Previously, we've looked at post-mortem findings. Those said Sheku's sudden death was due to intoxication while being restrained. These two factors, pathologists agreed, could not be separated in the cause of death. Caddy insists Sheku would still be alive if he hadn't encountered the police that morning. Police Scotland, though, point out they sent officers in response to 999 calls about a man holding a knife. They reject claims of wrongdoing, The inquiry is a result of the standoff between these two positions. The process now is neither quick nor easy. Evidence sessions, which started at Edinburgh's Capitol House in May 2022, are expected to continue well into 2024. After that, findings and recommendations will be produced by the chair, Lord Brackadale. On the first day of each new hearing, there is now a ritual. Campaigners in support of the Bio family gather outside the building with banners and calls for justice. Sometimes, like today, there is singing. When Caddy arrives, she and Amar Anwar will walk across the square towards Capitol House, where the inquiry takes place. Before going through the doors, she stands in front of campaigners and takes the mic. I'm I'm seeing phases here that I've seen from the very start of the inquiry, and I want to thank you. I'm also seeing people here as well, for the, maybe for the first time, 
and also thank you to those who send kind words of support and encouragement. That keeps me going, that gives me the strength and the energy to walk through those doors. Amar Anwar's message, though, is more biting. The Chief Constable, the senior officers have sat through this inquiry. Day in, day out, they have watched the evidence, they have seen the evidence, the family have always believed that there should be a criminal trial at the end of these proceedings. If it was your son, if it was your brother, what would you want to happen? You want justice. At the moment, we are searching for truth, but ultimately the family want justice. This hearing is mostly about police training. It's full of acronyms for police protocols and procedures, making it easy to lose sight of the family's fight for justice. So we're starting with that reminder. The law does not allow public inquiries to make findings of criminal or civil liability. But though the Crown Office has previously decided there was not sufficient evidence to prosecute officers involved, it also confirmed at the start of the inquiry back in 2022 that it reserved its right to prosecute if further evidence emerged. The family are listening closely. And while on the face of things these sessions are about training and policy, they've also thrown up some startling new revelations about policing, both back in 2015 and now. So let's start back at the beginning, at just after 7am on the 3rd of May 2015. We've told you before about the officers that attended Hayfield Road, where Sheikh Ubayo had been spotted that morning. This hearing wants to establish what training each of these officers had to help them carry out their roles that day. Three of the officers, PCs Tomlinson, McDonough and Good, were probationers and trained when the 2013 police manual was in place. PC Alan Smith was one of their trainers, so he should also have been familiar with this 2013 manual. Before Police Scotland was set up on the 1st of April 2013, Scotland had eight regional forces. The other PCs who attended that day, Short, Peyton, Walker and McDonough, joined the Fife Constabulary, as it would have been known then. That means they received different training, and the inquiry team has not been able to trace the training manuals of the Fife Constabulary, meaning it's more difficult to know exactly what they learned. But every officer who attended that morning had at least one day's worth of annual refresher training within six months of the 3rd of May 2015. And that also should have been taught from the up-to-date Police Scotland manual. The inquiry wants to know how well equipped they would have been to understand certain issues, including the dangers of positional asphyxia, especially when someone is restrained on their front, known as prone restraint. Positional asphyxia can prevent someone from filling their lungs properly and make breathing difficult. It's been highlighted as the cause of death for several high-profile cases of deaths in police custody. Those deaths include George Floyd, who was killed by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in 2020. In Scotland, the dangers of the impact of positional asphyxia have been pointed out to police for decades, according to Inspector James Young, who was in charge of officer safety training in 2015. And they are clearly spelled out in training materials drawn from the 2013 manual, he claims. Positional asphyxia was, I suppose, a golden thread, if you want to call it that, that would run through holes and restraints, takedowns, uh, anywhere, any technique that involved a prolonged element of restraint, then positional asphyxia would be referred to. 
That matters, he says, because it can be difficult to be precise while restraining someone, and so those warnings haven't always been heeded by officers. We had seen in the past many times where officers would just simply lie over the back of a subject. It wasn't particularly uncommon uh, to see officers lying across violent individuals um, because at times that's potentially the only way that they can protect themselves and others. Concerns about this have already been heard by the inquiry. Evidence has explored whether PC Walker, who weighed 25 stones, let's not forget, may have put his body weight across Sheku as he restrained him while he was lying on his stomach. He insists he only put weight on his shoulder. His account is firmly backed up by then-acting Sergeant Scott Maxwell, but it was disputed by some eyewitness accounts. Inspector Young also admits that there was a lack of consistency in terms of refresher training that was given before 2016, when he introduced a new and improved police manual. But in statements, the instructors who provided refresher training to PCs Walker, Payton, Short, Maxwell and Gibson said all the officers received their refresher training and insisted the risks were well covered. So everyone should have understood the risks. There are caveats to this, Inspector Young claims. The refresher course for officer safety training was only for one day per year. It's now taught over two days and he still doesn't think that's enough. And it can be difficult for officers in the midst of a restraint, possibly being kicked or assaulted as they do so, to focus on what is really happening. But yet, the primary duty, he says, is to preserve life. That includes the life of the person being arrested. He told the inquiry, officers had a legal and ethical duty to speak up if they see others take risks. Here's Inspector Young explaining that. For me, it's about having that responsibility of preserving life and that duty to preserve life, you know, the best of your ability. Am I right in saying that there are ethical responsibilities on officers? Uh, is the duty to preserve life one of those yes. ethical obligations? Yes, and a statutory obligation. I understand. Yeah. So would you expect all serving police officers to know that they have an ethical obligation to preserve life? Yes. In a situation where an officer can see something that is putting that life at risk, would that be when they should maybe that, that obligation tr kicks in or there is a trigger there for them to take steps to help preserve that life? In my view, yes. So if any officer was in a position to see something happening which placed a life at risk, it would be open to them regardless of rank, regardless of role, regardless of the status of other officers, to interject and say something. In my view, absolutely, yes. In his view, all officers are responsible for stepping in if they see something that puts someone's life at risk. Inspector Young says that when he started his role as head of officer safety training in 2014, he found lots of places where the manual was missing the mark. That's why he worked to put in place a new manual aimed at addressing some of the problems. But as this version wasn't launched until 2016, the next revelation comes as a surprise. Two years earlier, in 2014, Police Scotland started to work with the US-based Police Executive Research Forum, Perth, who aimed to reduce the use of police force. The project ran for 18 months, 
during which Police Scotland were able to highlight what they claimed was their expertise in reducing fatalities in the cases where people were mentally unwell or behaving erratically while in possession of a knife. The timing of Police Scotland's input is now striking. Here's Angela Graham Casey reading aloud from a section of Perth's report about lessons learned by US police from Police Scotland. And it says, on May the 7th, 2015, so that was a matter of days after Mr. Bio died, Perth convened a meeting in Washington, D.C. of approximately 300 police chiefs and other law enforcement executives to share their views on new approaches to police use of force training. Uh, because police in the UK have achieved great success in reducing the use of deadly force, especially in situations involving persons with mental illness wielding a knife or other non-firearm weapon, Perth invited two UK police officials, Chief Inspector Robert Pell of the Greater Manchester Police and Assistant Chief Constable Bernard Higgins of Police Scotland to participate in the conference. Do you remember in 2015, in around the May, if there had been great success achieved by Police Scotland in reducing the use of deadly force? As Caddy Johnson watches on, Inspector Young admits that no, he was not aware of any such success in the month that Sheku died in police custody. The May 2015 event in Washington was followed by a three-day programme in Scotland that November, attended again by Assistant Chief Constable Bernard Higgins, as well as Inspector Young, who was then a sergeant. The course included three mock scenarios involving two people with a knife and one with a baseball bat. All of them ended well. Neither Sheku's death eight months prior to this, nor the investigation surrounding it, was mentioned. In fact, says Inspector Young, he was never officially notified of Sheku's death. Lessons learned from it did not reach the new officer safety training manual. I became aware of the incident through the media. Um, I was never asked to do any sort of work because of, 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 of his death. Because I was unaware of the circumstances, um, it didn't impact my work at all. Um, for me, this work had been in the pipeline and where, we, where I wanted us to be, or where I thought we should be, um, was, was in the pipeline before that date. Something that did change in that new 2016 manual, however, was the use of the term excited delirium. We've told you about that term before. It originates in the US and has been criticised as a racially charged term used to explain away excessive use of police restraint. It's been discredited no longer used by police and no longer supported by the UK's Royal College of Pathologists as a cause of death. In 2016, Police Scotland finally replaced the term with an alternative, abnormal behavioural disturbance, which was already in use by police in England and Wales. This term is not a diagnosis, but used for a group of unusual behaviours. Regardless of the terminology, both should be treated as a medical emergency according to police training manuals. All the officer trainers are clear. In the 2014 and 2015 refresher courses, they taught the signs and symptoms of what was then called excited delirium. And they also taught that medical attention must be sought due to the risk to life that came along with it. 
Inspector Young has told the inquiry before that he felt strongly about the need to remove the dated term excited delirium. But his interest is not just academic. As an officer, he's also had to deal with people behaving erratically. It has been almost a quarter of a century since he first attended an incident where a woman was exhibiting signs of acute behavioural disturbance. He now realises on reflection. Officers restrained her to keep her away from a busy road. Things could have gone badly in this case, he admits. The second time he encountered this type of behaviour then, he did things differently. This is what he told Angela Graham KC. You talk in the the uh, statement about seeing the person's bizarre behaviour. They were sweating, they were constantly in motion. And you, on one occasion, uh, said, I instructed officers to let the individual go. And tell us a little bit more about that. I attended as a supervisor. um, And when I got there, for me, it was immediately apparent. Um, They were displaying the signs and symptoms some sort of delirium, you know, uh, um, potentially BD. Um, so I instructed officers to to follow the principles of contain rather than restrain, um, because I was aware of the the risks as associated with that. But having avoided restraint, there's a twist here. The problem we had was that we contacted an ambulance as per the training, as per our procedures, but unfortunately we were told it wasn't deemed to be a a medical emergency by by the Scottish Ambulance Service. They had to restrain him to get him to hospital in a police car anyway in the end. Inspector David Bradley, the current head of officer safety training, has also attended incidents like these. In one, he was called out to Greenock, where a man was threatening a woman. They restrained him for her safety, he says. It was only then that they realised he was hot to touch. Here he is explaining that. And again, uh, he struggled for a period till we were able to handcuff him. And again, at that point in time, it was my colleague who initially said to me, Sergeant, he's really hot to touch. And again, at that stage, and and I think this is a consistent theme. It's one of the things that, in my experience, officers are most likely to detect um, at that point in time we immediately called for an ambulance and, and looked to convey the information uh, that, that our subject was, uh, was potentially um, experiencing acute behavioural disturbance and, and that we would like an ambulance dispatched at the earliest opportunity. The ambulance took a very long time, he says, though in this case, it did eventually arrive. So how commonly do doctors see cases like this in emergency departments? According to Dr Richard Stevenson, Glasgow Royal Infirmary's busy emergency department, where he works, sees about one case of acute behavioural disturbance every fortnight. About 80% of those arrive with police officers, he says, and the vast majority of them arrive by police car rather than ambulance. Sometimes police claim that's because they were unable to get an ambulance to attend. Is this a suitable way of getting to hospital, he's asked. No, I would say uh, most certainly not. Um, you want to be able to keep a constant eye on the patient like you would be able to in the back of an ambulance. Uh, You want to avoid any risk of positional asphyxia, which may happen in the back of a cell van. And at the end of the day, it's a medical emergency as opposed to a police incident. 
The Scottish Ambulance Service told the ferret all calls for patients exhibiting characteristics of acute behavioural disturbance are now assessed by clinicians in the control room. It is continuing work with Police Scotland to improve things. By the time people do get to hospital, Dr Stevenson says, it can be hard to de-escalate the situation and it can be frightening for staff. Uh, we try and talk to them calmly, try and explain what's going on, um, saying, you know, ask them to stop resisting if they can. Uh, we would be saying along the lines of, we're going to get you better, uh, you, will, you, know, you will feel better uh, very quickly, um, we're just going to give you something to make you a bit sleepy. Restraint, he says, can make the symptoms worse. As we've heard previously, people suffering are likely to fight restraint, believing themselves to be under threat, and this can increase the risk of cardiac arrest. In hospital, patients are sedated, usually with ketamine, says Dr Stevenson, and given IV fluids, principally to reduce their temperature. Ahead of publishing the 2016 manual, Inspector Young brought in Dr Stevenson to offer clinical oversight, giving feedback on the officer safety and first aid training and ongoing advice. The doctor provides this for about four hours a month via email. It is not paid. The training given to officers is clinically accurate, he tells the inquiry. Yet despite improvements in training, he also says that only about half of the officers who bring patients in recognise that they're suffering from acute behavioural disturbances. There's another review of the officer training safety manual ongoing. This time, Inspector Bradley claims lessons learned from the inquiry will help inform it. We meet regularly to track any issues that are arising uh, from the inquiry where lessons can be perhaps explored and learned and implemented early. There's a rolling log of those lessons kept um, and I report back on our implementation uh, or, or provide further information for consideration by uh, our senior officers as to what action we will look to take. One of those was around the need for better unconscious bias training, he says. Unconscious bias is the way people discriminate against others without even realising that's what they're doing due to subconsciously held negative beliefs. Dr Peter Jones, a chartered psychologist and specialist in unconscious bias, was hired to do sessions with all the trainers and a new section on the use of force training was added. It aims, he says, to give officers awareness of how unconscious bias may cause them to use excessive force and give them tactics to make sure that doesn't happen. He estimates 7,000 officers have been through the training since June 2023, but the training offered by Dr Jones was for just one and a half hours. Elsewhere, there's recognition that the quantity, not just the quality, of training matters. At the start of 2024, Police Scotland started trialling monthly operational safety training to see whether they could protect against what they term skills fade. That means officers forgetting the lessons they've learned. It can happen within weeks, Inspector Young told the inquiry, if they don't have adequate time to practice those skills. And remember, currently the norm is for the updates to be done once a year. So what if police received those 999 calls to Hayfield Road where Sheku died today? What's changed? Inspector David Bradley suggests that for a start, an armed response vehicle would have been sent out. If you remember from previous hearings, that wasn't asked for until the incident on the 3rd of May was already underway. 
and as it was coming from Edinburgh, it would have taken too long to arrive. That morning, most say the timing of the call for an armed response vehicle was up to Acting Sergeant Scott Maxwell. Inspectors giving evidence were asked to look at his training record. Was there any record of him getting supervisory training, they asked. None can identify it. The question that hangs in the room is, would Sergeant Maxwell have done anything differently that day if he had had that training? But Inspector Bradley admits that officers who are acting up in a role are still not prioritised for training until the promoted post is made permanent. Originally from Australia, Inspector Bradley says he was shocked to see unarmed officers sent to deal with knife incidents when he came to the UK. He claims this is changing, but he's still at something of a loss when asked how unarmed officers should deal with a knife crime now, admitting none of the potential tactics are great. Inspector Young agrees with that, but he has a different perspective. He says when someone is disturbed, officers should try to stand off and give them space. And then they need to try to talk the person down. What officers should be trained in, he says, is better negotiation and conflict resolution techniques. And that's all about communication. Our training has been very heavily focused on the technical aspect, the, 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 the technique um, side of, of officer safety training. And in my view, that needed to be balanced by providing officers with better training in conflict resolution skills uh, and de-escalation skills. Um, if you only teach or train an officer to use physical skills, then because that's all you train them in, then that's probably what they will resort to. Um, we're meeting different challenges in our communities um, and we need to be better prepared for that. So we need to enhance our softer skills um, to minimise our resort to use of force. In 2018, Inspector Young was sent out on a third incident where he encountered acute behavioural disturbance. The man was naked, sweating and incoherent. He seemed scared, Inspector Young says, but that fear would sometimes erupt into violence. Police contained him for 15 to 20 minutes until he became calmer. Again, the ambulance service did not consider this a medical emergency. He was taken to hospital by police car. The inquiry doesn't hear what the final outcome was. But Dr David Stevenson is asked about the outcomes in the majority of cases treated for behavioural disturbances in hospital. Some, he says, might need further sedation or treatment after the initial crisis has passed. But the majority fully recover. They all come round and they, um, some are seen by a psychiatry because of the uh, expressions of paranoid delusions. Um, but most of them go home either the, day, the next day or the day after. Most of those who come in, in his experience, are young men who've taken drugs at a social event. They go home and they go on with their lives. By the time Sheku got to hospital though, his breathing had stopped and his heart trace was faint. He never went home. Instead, Caddie Johnson is sitting in the front row of an almost empty public gallery at an inquiry where the wind whistles mournfully through the building. 
She listens to police acronyms and hears plans to update manuals. And at the end of it all, she will leave the inquiry, cross the square and get back in her car and hope that she's now a day closer to what might feel like justice. The inquiry continues, this time hearing from the Police Investigations and Review Commission as questions are asked about just how independent it is of Police Scotland. You can listen to the evidence on the inquiry website at shekubayuinquiry.scot or catch up on what's happened so far by listening to all seven episodes of our podcast at theferret.scot or wherever you get your podcasts. By me, Karen Goodwin, and me, Tommy Waffler and Shaw. The Ferret is an investigative co-op run by and for its members. We believe good journalism changes things. To make this podcast, we've spent hours listening to all of the evidence so we can summarise it for you, our listeners. And we need your support to do more. Join us at theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and get three months free with the code PODCASTOFFER. This podcast was written and produced by Karen Goodwin. Research by Tommy Waffler and Shaw. Recording, editing and sound design by Helena Rafai. Original music by Alan Bryden.